Dear friends, welcome to Christendom Conversations, broadcasting on Radio Christendom. Coming to you, as always, from our campus in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, I'm your host, Mark Rolina, Executive Vice President here at the college. Christendom Conversations strives to bring you the time-tested insights you need to help you live your Catholic life to the fullest. In each episode, we visit with a Christendom College professor or occasional outside guest to explore the wisdom found in our liberal arts education and our Catholic faith. We're excited to have Dr. Connor Sweeney joining us for this installment. Dr. Sweeney is an associate professor in the Department of Theology at Christendom. He's a popular teacher and accomplished scholar who has made significant efforts to connect our baptismal identity with our evangelical call, among other aspects of our faith. Dr. Sweeney, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, let's begin with a prayer, invoking Our Lady for our conversation, for a deepening love of truth and the richness of our faith, including among the leaders of our church at this critical moment in history. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, seat of wisdom, pray for us. The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, Dr. Sweeney, it's a joy to, to have you on the program. I know we've talked about uh, getting together here for a while, so it's finally come to fruition. <laughs> and uh, I know you're in the midst of prep for the new semester, so appreciate you taking this time. My pleasure. You're also taking me away from the golf course, but I won't, <laughs> I I won't hold that against you. No. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, well, there's a lot to cover, and I, I hope you'd be willing to come back in the future because I think yeah. we're, we're only going to scratch the surface here. Uh, but maybe let's begin close to the beginning. You you were born and raised in Canada? That's correct, yep. Okay. Were you raised Catholic? Is, I'm always interested by people's story leading up to the point where they decide to sure. go into academics. Yeah, I was raised Catholic, although my family environment was somewhat unique in that my dad was Catholic, is Catholic, and my mom is Protestant. So I did sort of grow up in a fairly ecumenical environment, which in hindsight, that was certainly a positive thing. It does in some sense, from the perspective of Catholic faith, it does thematize faith in such a way that you need to sort of consider it in contact in context and dialogue with, in this case, um, Protestantism. So it did sort of make me aware of faith and the kind of questions related to faith from a, from a young age. So raised Catholic, dad took all the kids to church, and that was sort of a fundamental part of our life. I wouldn't say we were sort of excessively devout, but certainly um, it would, faith was a fundamental part of part of my life uh, growing up. Okay. And what's uh, I think it's interesting to to delve into this a little bit. We don't have to bash Canada too much, but what was your sense about um, the ability to sort of live the faith freely in and we've got this sort of attitude towards Canada, you know, genial <laughs> folks who are non-confrontational <laughs> for the right. most part. Maybe yeah. maybe the last years have have tarnished that a bit, but um, was it easy to be a Catholic in Canada generally speaking? Um, well, where I came from, I was born and raised sort of an hour inland from Vancouver. And actually, in terms of dioceses in Canada, Vancouver's historically been a fairly strong one. We had some solid bishops growing up. And it just so happened that um, where I lived, it was actually called the Bible Belt. So there's a lot of Christianity, primarily Protestant Christianity, a couple Catholic churches. Um, but faith was strong. Faith was well-practiced. We were blessed with solid parish priests. So my own personal experience of Catholicism was fairly sound um, for the most part. Um, in terms of the, the country as a whole, certainly it's a checkered history in regards to Catholicism in Canada, and certainly culturally there are some issues in, in Canada. 
Um, but from my perspective and my experience, that was always kind of out there. Didn't really affect me in terms of my faith formation. That being said, I didn't really sort of get serious about faith until probably I was in my late teens. And so that's where I had a kind of reconversion experience. And that was very much focused around JP2, which is a which is another story, but that's roughly been my experience of Catholicism in Canada. Okay. Well that's a that's a good segue. Take us from that maybe that moment of reversion um to the point where you decided I'm gonna dedicate my whole sure. life to to studying theology and teaching people about the truths of the faith. Yeah, I mean it started with encountering JP two theology the body. That was sort of the catalyst. And for me, theology, if you'd asked me to sort of conceptualize things of faith, God, belief, Christianity in general, you probably would have got a pretty hazy answer from me. I mean, I think I was catechized well, and I kind of knew the fundamentals, but there was a lack of integration, a lack of depth, and probably a lack of personal um, engagement and spiritual concentration when it came to the faith. So encountering theology of the body in some sense triggered something in me, a, a kind of real conversion experience in terms of going deeper into faith. And certainly JP2's way of doing theology and from theology of the body, it sort of um, went went to reading everything that I could get my hands mm-hmm. on from JP2. And I would have been only 19 years old at the time. Um, but that was really the catalyst that renewed my faith, deepened my faith, and eventually led me to entertain the possibility of dedicating my life uh, to it. Was there a, a, a central figure, a person who was giving you the material? Did you stumble it on I kind of stumbled or? across yeah. it at a, a local Catholic college, actually, which I ended up attending later on and just happened to go to a seminar via friends, and it just sort of lit a spark. Mm. And I just thought, hey, I want, I want more of this. So I picked up a copy of The Theology of the Body, and the first time I read it was during a summer job at a hardwood mill. <laughs> And I would read a couple audiences during my breaks and then go out for two hours on the on the floor of the mill, headphones in and and running boards through planers, mm. just meditating on what I had read. And you know, it's it's a very deep, complex work. So I was only getting so much out of it, but there's enough there to really, you know, spark something deeper and it kind of spiraled from there. Sure. Doing the work of a carpenter as you're studying yeah, sure. the truth like from <laughs> Jesus Christ, that's probably a good thing. Um, okay, so you you encountered this, you, you you sought out some additional material, especially it sounds like John Paul II was was the main figure in terms of mm-hmm. the intellectual richness there, um, and then you you said let's let's give theology a try. How did where did it go? From yeah, there? I mean, I knew I was interested in theology. I didn't know in what capacity. I certainly had no initial plans to become an academic. Mm-hmm. That was not really even entering into my um, thought at the moment. But I decided well. Best thing I can do is go to go to university. That way, I don't have to work right away, at least. <laughs> yeah. um, so it was part of my motivation. So I did four years of undergrad at a place called Trinity Western University in near Vancouver. On the campus of that evangelical university was this Catholic college, Redeemer Pacific mm. College, and so I did sort of Catholic studies, theology, philosophy at that college. So it was it was a continuation, in some sense, of my ecumenical. Um, sort of experiences as a as a kid, but it was from there that I decided sort of that I did want to take it further. And by this point, I'd become aware of the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family campuses in Rome, 
Washington. And I sort of thought initially, well, I'd like to go study. Washington's the obvious choice. I don't have to learn Italian. It's close, relatively close by. So after, you know, near the ending stages of my undergraduate degree, I pursued that. And as it turned out, for a number of reasons, we sort of got on to the session of the Institute in Melbourne, Australia. Mm. And that ended up being the one that I went. My wife and I got married right after I'd finished my undergrad. We went over and spent an extended two-year honeymoon in <laughs> Melbourne while I did my started my graduate studies. Okay. Um, and at that point, though, you knew uh, this is where you're going to dedicate your life to. Yeah, yeah. Generally speaking, I didn't, again, I didn't know what that would actually mean. And sort of during my graduate studies in Melbourne, we were sort of marching to the getting near to the end. My wife was pregnant. We had bought our tickets back home to Canada. Mm -hmm. I still didn't know what path would come next. So it was only sort of within the last two weeks in the country that the dean of the institute, um, Tracy Rowland, called me into her office and basically offered me a job. Said, mm -hmm. look, we want you to go do, do your doctorate in Rome and then come back and teach. And even to that point, I still didn't quite know if academia was what I was being called to, what I was interested in. So we took a bit of time, prayed about it. Within a couple of days, we figured, look, we're not going to get an opportunity like this. Mm. You know, it feels providential. So we accepted, went back to Canada for a year. My wife gave birth to our first child. And then we packed up again the following year and headed to Rome. And that was a wild experience. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, we certainly could talk more, more about that part of it. I guess maybe just as a sidebar, and it, it would be great to come back to the the JP2 Institutes, because if, if you're open sure. to talking a little bit about kind of the current state of things, but um, the the institute in Melbourne had um, had an interesting uh, patron, I guess, somebody who uh, is, a, is a friend of the college and, and I know um, took great delight and energy in trying to get get things going Correct. there. So yeah, could you explain a little bit of maybe about the origin there? Yeah, the origins of the Melbourne Institute, it was founded in 2001, I believe. The Roman session started in 81, 82, actually the very, the day that the Pope was actually supposed to officially um, start the Institute was the day he got assass assassinated, oh, wow. assassination attempt rather. Okay. So it was bumped back. But anyway, that's, a, that's another story. Wow. But in terms of the Melbourne session, 2001, and it was sort of the initiative of Cardinal Pell, then Archbishop mm -hmm. Pell, Archbishop of Melbourne. So he was the mover and shaker behind that. And certainly he faced a lot of resistance from priests in the diocese mm -hmm. of, of Melbourne who were resistant to the school. I mean, in some sense... For reasons of the fact that it was very much JP2's vision, an orthodox vision of anthropology and sexuality and the meaning of what it means to be a body and live as a body. And of course, this is a message that is countercultural and so on and so forth. So there was certainly resistance to it, but he overcame that and it was established in 2001 and things were sort of up and running at that that point. Okay. And I, I feel like I'm just going to be rattling off stereotypes here, but my sense is that there's sort of a, a fierce... Uh, independent streak among among Australians is there is is there was there some openness I mean I, I don't know how much you were able to sort of connect with um, you know the country in general with the work you were doing but yeah Australians sort of have a very um, unique identity in the fact that a lot of them are descendants of convicts back mm -hmm. in the day so there is this very and that's kind of a badge of honor for right. for many Australians today if you had a you know ancestor who was a convict but so there is this sort of free 
free spirit amongst Australians, you might say, that is sort of traditional and ingrained. Unfortunately, that's sort of changed in many respects mm. in the last few years. Mm. So I think it's more of a kind of mythology now. I see. But yeah. certainly the best sort of exhibit that sort of trait. And I think Pell is an example of that. He was a, he was a footballer growing up, mm -hmm. a very strong, strong man. And certainly that he made enemies, I think, precisely because he was so strong mm -hmm. as a man and his faith and his vision of the church and, and really did try to implement the vision of JP2 in, in his diocese. But Yeah, God rest his soul. So, uh, you know, sadly for the Institute in, in Australia, but maybe, you know, a great side benefit <laughs> for us here at Christendom, um, you, you joined our faculty uh, just a few years back. Um, I wonder if we could speak a little more generally about the study of theology. Um, I think there's a lot of people who say, hey, fine for a seminarian, you know, maybe a holy roller wants to go and spend their time studying these things. But, I mean, do you feel that that's the right way to think about it? What, what about theology really should compel each of us or impel each of us to Yeah, I think in. theology is fundamentally for everyone at a very general level. I mean, if you're baptized, you're immersed into the mystery of God, the mystery of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. And so theology as sort of thought and speech about God um, is in some sense now the first language mm -hmm. of the baptized believer. Now, at the same time, of course, theology is a a science, a rigorous science, properly speaking, and it does require formation, it does require knowledge, and maybe that's not for everyone. But mm -hmm. I think at a very general level, you know, the Christian should be leading a life that is focused on God, in which God is the object of intellectual inquiry, deepening our learning and understanding of this mystery that has begun in our flesh by baptism. So for that, from that point of view, theology certainly is for everyone. And I think catechesis is in some sense building off of baptism is like first theology for most people. Mm. And that if that's done well, I think you can establish a very firm foundation for lifelong learning and pursuit of wisdom and the things of God for each and every person. Sure. Well, we'll get, hopefully get to your, one of your recently published books, uh, but I appreciated one aspect where you, you, you kind of opened with saying you're going to, you're going to try to make this, accessible, not right. be um, excessive in terms of the, sure. you know, the, the terminology of yeah, the science. Yeah, academics are notorious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but is, it, is, is there a way really to, to kind of navigate that? Because obviously there are, um, there are certain terms, there are things mm -hmm. that we have to understand as concepts that really originated with, sure. you know, the faith in the, in the teaching of the faith that, you know, transubstantiation, I don't know if there's another yeah. way to, you have yeah. to use the word, yeah. I guess, you know, those kind of things. Is is there a way to thread that needle? I think there is. I mean, I think if you look at, say, the creed, which gives you certain fundamental truths of faith, and good catechesis based on the creed can start to get into key ideas like, say, for example, one of the things I love talking with my students about, the hypostatic mm -hmm. union, for example. So you can get into deep theological con con concepts um, in a way that doesn't get bogged down in verbiage and all of the debates in, in history. And I think the way to do that is to stay close to baptismal formula, close. Mm -hmm. And of course, the Apostles' Creed has sort of begun as a code of interrogation of baptism. Mm -hmm. So that when faith is being lived at that level, it's being inculcated not just through the brain, but through the heart, and that in some sense becomes a foundation to start to go deeper into the fundamental ideas and concepts. Now, I think 
that can be done well, but it does require a kind of functioning culture of mm -hmm. practices. Faith has to be something that in some sense is ordering your life. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, the whole intellectual impetus to go deeper doesn't really go there. You need to have that spark lit first. Mm -hmm. If that spark is lit and sustained, then I think you can start to deepen your knowledge, properly speaking. And I think there are, there are certainly thinkers that exemplify you know, what theology in popularized form can look like. And one of those thinkers I would say would be Ratzinger. Mm -hmm. Certainly he's dealing with weighty topics and some of his writings are challenging. I think, for example, of his introduction to Christianity. I mean, it's an, it's an introduction, but, right. you know, it's heavy duty stuff. But right. great communicator, really ordered, really well expressed. When you read his works, I mean, it really is, it can be an enlightening experience. Yeah. Do you see among students, I guess, uh, what would you identify as the as maybe some of the impediments, some of the obstacles you run into? I mean, you've seen you certainly folks from the day they stepped on campus and now you know right. reached the point of graduation, taught some folks in elective courses uh, in the within the major. What is it that you sort of have to clear away to to create that receptivity or help the Lord <laughs> clear away, I guess. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a few things. I mean, there's probably things which are universal, mm -hmm. like, well, the academic life is hard work and you have to be disciplined yeah. and you have to be focused. You have to do your reading. You have to engage and human beings being what they are. You mean, I'd rather be out playing golf. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you do sort of have to be willing to enter into a kind of discipline and pedagogy. You might say there are more challenges there simply in light of the, you know, modern culture with all its distractions and, you know, mm -hmm. your, your iPhones and all of these things, which in some sense have made attention, the attention needed to focus deeply on an idea um, more difficult than perhaps past generations. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if the Christendom student has that problem per se. Sometimes the problems that you would face are Christendom students who, in some sense, they've been catechized and that's, that's good, but they might have reached a point where they might sort of think, well, that's kind of all there is to know. Mm. If I can rattle off, you know, the Baltimore catechism, that's yeah. faith. When in actual fact, you know, I have to kind of convince them sometimes that it goes a lot deeper. In some sense, you know, a, a doctrinal proposition or formula, it's good, but it is only a signifier of a much deeper mm -hmm. reality that goes beyond mm -hmm. it. So don't get stuck on the signifier necessarily. Use that as a way to go deeper into the mystery of the word made flesh, the mystery of God as Trinity three in one. Mm -hmm. And at that point, theology really becomes a journey of discovery that like God is infinite. Right. Right. Yeah, I suppose it's natural to want to know if we check the boxes to, yeah. to get where and, we need you know, to go. That's, that's, not, that's not faith. In some sense, that's an important first yeah. step. And when you are talking about initial formation, you do need to give people substance and something to hold on to. The, the point, though, is that you don't want them to cling to that yeah. out of fear. And there is a kind of fear that, you know, if I go deeper, you know, I might mm -hmm. find things that disturb my faith. I mean, that's in some sense a natural feeling. But certainly when we're talking about a relationship that is always growing and moving, like our relationship with Christ, like any relationship, we do always want to go deeper into that experience of love. And that requires, in some sense, confronting what is unknowable, mm -hmm. confront un unknown, confronting things that, in some sense, will challenge and disturb us even. Right, right. And you think about St. Augustine sort of on that periphery saying, yeah, not quite yet. But yes, yes, then, then exactly. He makes the plunge. Um, well, give me a sense about your idea, where, where does theology fit 
you know, we've, we've got a, a, a liberal arts curriculum here. Um, uh, where do you see theology relative to the other disciplines? Um, how are the disciplines in service of one another? Sure. Um, at least your, your quick take on that. Yeah, I mean, theology in some sense is like all the other disciplines in that it is a science. It is sort of ordered knowledge that has an object and that employs the human intellect to, to deepen it. Of course, theology is unique in, in the sense that its object is the infinite God. And in that sense, it goes beyond what the intellect is naturally capable of, of knowing. So the, the fact of the incarnation, the word made flesh, the infinite God entering into space and time and making himself available to human beings. And so theology, from this point of view, does try to contact the infinite reality of God. Newman had this interesting idea that theology, when it comes to theology and its role in the liberal arts, in some sense, theology is a reminder to all the disciplines that there's something beyond, mm. that goes beyond the human ability to control and exhaust its meaning. So this transcendence, this infinite reality beyond the human mind is in some sense one of the messages that we get in theology. So there's a resistance there, you might say, to human thought becoming an ideology, closing sure. in on itself. Mm -hmm. Theology is this reminder that ultimately the object of human knowledge, the most important object of human knowledge, is the infinite God who has given himself in Jesus Christ. So... Mm -hmm. In some sense, yes, it's about knowledge, but it's also paradoxically, you might say, about the limits of mm -hmm. our knowledge. And at some point, our thought has to give way to love, to what cannot be thought in human categories. So St. Thomas's famous experience at the end of his life, where he says, everything that I've written seems like straw right. in this experience of, of God himself. So I think theology does have to retain that sense of mystery, even as it is the ordered sort of articulation of, of truths about God. So paradox, mystery, it's a science, yes, mm -hmm. in some sense those are all rolled into one. Yeah. I've heard you said say before, maybe in, maybe you've, uh, in an interview context, uh, that you don't consider yourself a specialist. I guess, what are, you, what are you passionate, what do you love to study and teach most within the field? Yeah, I mean, you're right. I wouldn't regard myself as a specialist. Um, you might say I don't have the attention span to spend my whole life on one thing. Maybe I have a short attention span, but it's kind of like I focus on one thing and I don't want to say plumb the depths, but satisfy myself that I've looked into it as much as I want to look into it and then I move on to another. So in some sense, when you look at my three published works, for example, they're representative of my broad interests. So the first... My doctorate was basically on, in the area of sacramental theology, in dialogue conversation with themes in continental or postmodern mm. um, philosophy. And my main um, conversation partner there was Heidegger, mm -hmm. looking at themes of sacramental presence um, in the context of certain deconstructions of metaphysics that Heidegger in some sense is representative. So I was going into Sounds some pretty like weighty needs some unpacking, there. yeah. Yeah, so highly philosophical in, in some regard. Um, Heidegger is sort of famous for, in some sense, wanting to roll back or destroy um, the entire sort of metaphysical way of thinking that goes back to Plato mm -hmm. and sort of restoring a kind of contemplative, meditative savoring of being that refuses to sort of pin meaning down, mm. as it were. 
in some sense, he's on to something. It is capable for us to create systems that are too inflexible when mm. it comes to reality itself. But certainly that's not to say that there isn't truth, properly speaking, and that the human intellect isn't capable of that. So I was working through a lot of the implications of that question in the context of how we say, for example, that Christ is present in the Eucharist. Sure. So that project was very much straddling the disciplines of sacramental theology and, in this case, continental philosophy. So interdisciplinary kind of thinking is what interests me most. Sure. If I can bring different disciplines into conversation and dialogue with each other, that's kind of what keeps me most entertained. Yeah. From that, my next major published work was the Hobbit book, I call it. I'm abiding <laughs> the long defeat, how to evangelize like a hobbit in a disenchanted age. And that was kind of born out of lectures at, at the Institute, lectures that are not given in class, but given to a popular audience. Um, initially in New Zealand, I delivered those. Mm -hmm. So that sort of became a, eventually became a book and it's written at a quasi popular level. And it's basically looking at the question of faith and evangelization in a modern context. So I was able to sort of use some of my chops in continental or postmodern philosophy to sort of engage cultural analysis, Nietzsche, some of the seminal thinkers of mm -hmm. the age, try to understand a secular age as the backdrop, the context within which um, evangelization takes place. What are some of the challenges? What are some of the things that we need to take into account when we do try to incarnate the gospel in today's society? So finally, my most recent book is um, Politics of Conjugal Love, basically a work of theological anthropology, which focuses on sexual difference, man, woman, particularly focused on the question of headship mm -hmm. in marriage. So it's sort of like I'm just trying to sabotage my academic career at this point. <laughs> right. um, doesn't matter what you say, you're always going to find someone who disagrees with you on that topic. Um, mm -hmm. But that really became that topic, that narrow Pauline theme of headship and submission kind of became the vehicle to go deeper into um, a theology of man mm -hmm. and woman. Obviously, JP2 is important in terms of a foundation there. And so that's been my most recent uh, work. Great. Well, I'd like to get a little bit more into that, but this is a good time for us to take a quick break. Sure. Some messages. We'll be right back with Dr. Connor Sweeney on Christendom Conversations. As Catholics today, we are facing a culture that seeks to sweep away the roots and reasons for our faith. All of us need help upholding our Catholic beliefs. That's why each week, Christendom College's Dr. Timothy O'Donnell opens the riches of Catholic education to all Catholics in his free Principles video series. You can join Dr. O'Donnell for five minutes each week and learn from the best thinkers, hear amazing stories from history, and get spiritual tips to strengthen your Catholic faith. Sign up today at principlesforyourweek.com. That's principlesforyourweek.com. And welcome back to Christendom Conversations, where we offer time-tested insights to help you live your Catholic life to the fullest. I'm Mark Rolina, here with Dr. Connor Sweeney, Associate Professor of Theology at Christendom College. So when we just got done, you gave us a good segue. I would love to spend a little time talking about um, that, that middle work of yours, uh, 
no pun intended for Middle Earth here, but <laughs> abiding the long defeat, how to evangelize like a hobbit in a disenchanted age. So um, give me a sense, I guess, what you just touched on it, but what were you hoping to do when you wrote it? What were you thinking about as, as the, the topics came together? I know you mentioned the fruit of some lectures, but even their origin, there must have been something you were aiming at as, as the main main goal. Yeah, I mean, I think my first impulse there was really t- trying to tackle the question of faith in a modern or secular age. Belief seems harder today, you might say, than it has in the past. And there's a reason for that. There's lots of reasons for that. But certainly when you look at the 20th century, it's an age of ideology. It's an age of collapsing faith in some sense that's unprecedented um, from the point of view of, of Christendom. Um, so the question of faith within those kinds of pressures, doubt, Nietzsche proclaimed the death of God, for example, at mm-hmm. the end of the 19th century, you know, the kind of flattening out of any transcendent possibility when it comes to the human being and his the meaning of what it means to be human and what the human being's destiny might be. In various ways, this has trickled down into you know, all parts of our, our culture to the point that Christian faith to many appears a joke. Mm-hmm. Even those who take it seriously think, well, it's a nice idea, but maybe it is all just a projection mm-hmm. like the great um, German philosopher Ludwig Feuerbach thought everything was just projection. Mm-hmm. Or if you're like someone like Freud, well, maybe it's just a sublimation of, you know, some desire for a father. Again, it's just a kind of projection. So how can belief be made something credible, a God, transcendence, something beyond the visible? What are the conditions which within which that might again become a possibility? And what does that mean for us called to preach the gospel as, as Christians? when it comes to how we spread the good news in this age. So that was kind of the, the focus. And from there, I sort of got into the question of, well, we're called to preach the gospel. Let's say we can figure out the culture. We know what needs to be said. But maybe we ourselves haven't really bought the message. Maybe we ourselves are just as damaged wounded and doubtful as those that we seek to evangelize. So well, this, uh, if I can just interrupt for, for a yeah. minute, just, I, I thought that was powerful imagery you used because anybody who's a fan of the Lord of the Rings books understands, you know, you have these great civilizations that are mm. dotted throughout middle earth. Yes. And clearly some are weary, some are more beset than yes. others. Yes. Um, there's a, there's a trouble mm. hearing the rallying cry and, and coming to, to the aid of, of the West. What, that analogy I thought was really great. Yeah. Just, uh, could you expound a little bit on that? Just yeah, that brokenness. A, that that's drawn. a good point. I mean, yeah. you think of the men of Gondor, for example. Mm-hmm. This very, you know, strong history of strength and valor, and this belief in their way of life, and yet, sort of in the context of Middle Earth at the time of Lord of the Rings, this is all kind of collapsing. Mm-hmm. And there's doubt in people's mind about, you know, what is the vision? And, you know, where is the king, for example? We've got these caretaker kings who mm-hmm. aren't really doing a very good job and show themselves to be weak and lack faith. And so where is the renewal, if you will, to come from? Mm-hmm. Do we even believe in this civilization anymore? And I think right. there's an analogy there for, you know, our own Christian civilization. Sure. 
Um, in many respects, we don't have Christendom anymore, however we want to define that. There's a great doubt and anxiety about the legacy of Christendom, and I think people very much take this in one way or another in, in the culture. So very much a hatred against things of faith. People see faith as a force for evil in the world mm -hmm. rather than a force for good. And so the question then is, well, how do we drill down and try to recover what the essence of faith is and show that again in a way that is liberating for people? I mean, right. Christianity from the beginning was good news. Yeah. And so you might just ask, well, what, is this, what does this actually mean? Mm -hmm. What is this good news? Who is this good news for? And what does that actually mean? And sort of to return to my, my previous point, I mean, what is the good news for me? What is the condition of, of my mm -hmm. faith? Do I know my faith? Do I have my own doubts? Have I confronted them? Have mm -hmm. I tried to go deeper? Because if you can't do that for yourself, then in some sense, preaching the gospel to others is going to be a very problematic thing. Yeah. So ring, in some sense, there's the a... The ring will retain its attraction. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and in ways, some yeah. sense, we're all in bondage yeah. to it. Yeah. So the book did become a kind of examination of conscience, a kind of, mm -hmm. you know turn to ourselves to figure out, you know, the, the state of our own faith and what we need to do to reinvigorate ourselves, as it were. Mm -hmm. The identity as baptized Christians comes up again and again, and I think in a lot of your writings, um, it's certainly a critical thread in, in this particular book that we're talking about. So I guess what about baptism is key for us? It, what is that supposed to ignite in right. the life of a Christian? Yeah, and so baptism is really the answer, in a nutshell, to the problem that I've, I've just posed. Um, I think of baptism first as a kind of fundamental template, the fundamental template of Christian existence. Mm -hmm. So the old man of sin gives way to the new man in Christ. When mm -hmm. you look at the drama of the rite of baptism, it starts with this turning to the West and rejecting... Satan and all his pomps, mm. the world, evil, the old man burdened by sin, stuck in, you know, this temporal existence that always ends in death. So baptism means turning away from that and entering into the light, the rising of the sun, the east. You enter into the mystery of Christ's death and resurrection, the death and resurrection that brings us life. And so you go down with Christ into that font the old man is put to death, and you rise again resplendent, animated by this new life now as an adopted child of God. There's real, so there's real drama there. I mean, this, there is, even the there way you're is. describing it. It's, it's not just yes. a sort of once, one and you're done sort mm -hmm. of a thing. Mm -hmm. It's like this is the template of Christian life, this constant dying to self and this constant rebirth, conversion. Conversion is the form of the Christian life. So unless you as a believer amidst all the troubles and cares of the world, unless you're going back to the font constantly, mm. you're never going to be able to survive the storm. Mm. So this going back to death with Christ and rising again, becoming a child of God, now being connected to God in a real, let's say, familial mm. way. You are ontologically, if you will, a child of God. Mm. God looks on you like he looks on his beloved son. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is radical stuff. Yeah. You're related to God. You're a son in the son. You share in Christ's relation to the Father as son. This is the new ground of your being. And it's good news because it's eternal life. Mm. It solves once and for all the problem of bondage to sin. It gives you freedom in the spirit. Mm. 
So if you forget about baptism, if we forget about how radical and revolutionary it is, then everything else about the Christian life loses its radical edge, mm. loses its meaning. When we talk about the Eucharist, for example, the Eucharist is in some sense the returning to the mystery of the font that generated you. Mm. It's meeting the risen Christ, the Christ who went down into sin for us. It's renewing that process of your own death and rebirth. So in some sense, you don't get the Eucharist right and how important it is for the life of the Christian unless you connect it dynamically to baptism. Right. So in the end, baptism I speak of also as a kind of anthropology. There's the coordinates for what it means mm -hmm. to be human. From our point of view, we're called by a conversion to enter more deeply into that mystery and so be conformed more closely to the Son, to see our existence and our being ultimately in Trinitarian terms, in terms of love, the love that suffered and died and poured itself off for us simply for the fact that God is love and God desires us to relate to him in exactly the same way. You mentioned that anthropology. Um, I think I always am taken back to John Paul II talking about the crisis of our time. Uh, at its root is a crisis of the human person. Yes. Uh, can you maybe unpack that a little bit? Yes, Just, and that's all, that's all connected in yeah. some sense to what I'm responding to in this particular book. Um, certainly when you look at the 20th century, you know, guys like JP2, guys like Benedict, in some sense they saw just how far into the mock man is capable of descending. When we talk about all the various ideologies that are born in the 20th century from communism, Marxism, liberalism, all of these things that fundamentally question the existence of God, question the existence of transcendent meaning for human beings. In some sense, JP2 realized that addressing this crisis of man, who is man, what is he called to, what is he created for, what is his form, what is his essence, this very much was part of the crisis of the day. A significant aspect of that crisis certainly came about in the 1960s and 70s, the sexual revolution, which obviously in some sense tries to remake man according to a very different vision of man as a bodily sexual being. And so part of JP2's founding of the Institute was centered on addressing that particular aspect of man's being. Mm. So to return to the theology, the body, which is in some sense a source text of JP2's anthropology, we see him sort of ask the question, well, who is man? What does it mean to have a body? What does it mean to be man and woman? These are the, and remain sort of the questions of the age. He goes back to the beginning and says, well, in the beginning, God created man, male, and female. Mm -hmm. And so... From this point, he sort of rebuilds a Christian anthropology, looking specifically at questions of sexual difference, the mystery of love between man and a woman, and the mystery of fruitfulness that elicits from that love. Mm. And so he kind of tries to restore the idea that man is created in the image of God as male and female, as a body, that man's generative capacity to create new life is an echo, an image of the fruitfulness, the expansive character of love in God himself. So it's not just a natural thing. It's not just a, sec a secular thing, mm -hmm. a horizontal thing. It's something that actually stretches up into the very heights of the mystery of God uh, himself. And so to conform yourself to that is ultimately to live according to 
your identity, who you are. It's to experience love so as to better understand God as love. So this very mystery of a sacramental Mm -hmm. identity is is part of what he's trying to uncover here. So if you're lacking an understanding of that anthropology, if you, you, (laughs) I guess, sacramentalize everything else because you're not connected with what the church really has to offer, that's a hopeless state to be in. I mean, I, right. you can understand, I guess, why people are, are just cobbling together whatever they can that they think will make them happy. Well, that's right. We have to focus in on something, right? Mm-hmm. We need meaning. And if we don't believe in God, well, it's not that we simply lead a life of meaninglessness. Mm-hmm. Very few of us actually don't have, just give up, mm-hmm. but we're going to put some surrogate meaning in its place, yeah. and whether it's sex, whether it's drugs, sort of things that people have talked about for, for generations, or whether it's, you know, totally new ways of reimagining the world and the human body. So the transsexual thing in some sense made possible now by technology. I mean, we're talking about the, the remaking of the human being in a profoundly, you know, new way. We've never seen anything like this and our technological ability simply fuels and feeds Mm -hmm. the capabilities of what our ideologies are now, you know, pointing towards. Right. So with that, state in the world, and just maybe to try to wrap up the last thought on on this book, how does a Christian reach into that dynamic and evangelize effectively? Let's say I've, I've, I've worked on my, my state, tried to shore up as much as I can and know that I'm continually going back mm-hmm. to the sources of strength and, and perseverance that the faith offers me. Um, is that a great opportunity we have ahead of us? Um, you know, the brokenness is is a tragic thing for all the people who are experiencing it, but what does it mean for us as evangelizers? Right. Yeah, I think the silver lining is that if you're going to have faith today, you have to be existential. Well, that's a loaded word, but I, I mean it in a particular way. Mm. We have to seriously have confronted ourselves and the mystery of existence, the crisis of the situation we find ourselves in, suffering, all these things, we have to have come to grips with those. And so there is a real sense that crisis is an opportunity for for deepening ourselves in faith. In terms of what we do now, well, the first thing I say in my book is, you know, basically be like a hobbit, okay? (laughs) Most of us are not going to be positioned to, you know, be great orators, to be great politicians. Some of us, yes. And I think those that are called to those things, well, the first step for them as well is being a hobbit learning your faith, living your faith at the very basic level in your home, in your church, in your workplace. And that's where, in some sense, you have to start. You have to be trained at that point. From that, then great things can can happen. Great. I, I don't know if we have time to, to just touch on one last topic, and if you really want to go... Um, into this, and I appreciate you know you've given us so much food for thought. I, we could have many <laughs> discussions about what you've already said, but just give me, give me your assessment about um, I guess the importance of the legacy of John Paul II. You've touched on it already, but then yeah, again a second on the on where the the institutes maybe stand. Do you feel like I mean, it's 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 a hard reality, I'm sure, for yes. you having gone through them for education and and taught yes. there. Yes. Um, yeah, that's a tough question in the sense that certainly the Institute is not what it once was. Mm-hmm. Um, so the statutes, for example, of the Roman session have been changed. There's been a turnover in staff, and some of the new appointees are not the most ideal 
candidates, let's say. So there is a sense in which the the legacy of JP2 is under threat. I think the positive to be taken out of that is that we, one way or another, we have the body of his work with us and no one can take that. No one can take that away. So I think that is in some sense, the intellectual engine room of any new initiatives that are born sort of that seek to continue the legacy of his thought. Mm. Um, certainly JP2 was followed by Benedict. Um, and again, in many respects, Benedict carried on his legacy. So when you look at these two popes, you're looking at insights that in some sense will keep us busy for the next couple hundred years. Right. And when you look at, at the history of the church, I mean, there are new movements, there are new communities sort of being born all the time. Most of them don't stick around, mm-hmm. you know, forever. So there is this sense in which charisms constantly need to be renewed and started anew. And so I think we do have hope from the point of view that we do have a vision there that can be the catalyst for once again starting new things and you know keeping things hopefully headed in the right track. Yeah, I mean, I have great great uh, joy and uh, hope that the group in our theology department are very much committed to to keeping that legacy alive and I appreciate so. all your work there. Yes. Well, sadly we're out of time, Dr. Sweeney. I feel like, again, we've just scratched the surface, um, which means I think you have to come back if that's okay. Anytime. <laughs> all right. Well, our show is in an end for today. We want to thank everyone who's tuned in. If you have any questions or comments about today's show, you can email us at radio at christendom.edu. For more information about how Christendom College is helping students learn the truth, live the faith and thrive, please visit our website at christendom.edu. We hope you join us again very soon as we continue to point towards some of the rich treasures that our faith and our liberal education can offer. You know, we've spoken today about St. John Paul II quite a bit, as well as the stark diagnosis of so much of what ails us in our world. John Paul II saw more clearly than most the atrocities and horrors that are unleashed when we misapprehend who we are and what we were made for. They're on full display today. But even with his clarity and understanding of evil, he would always carry with him a message of hope and joy against the growing darkness. The power of the witness of a life well-lived in tune with God's plan is a great light. In one of his many exhortations to young people, St. John Paul II said, and I quote, Do not forget that the future of humanity is in the hands of those men who are capable of providing the generations to come with reasons for life and optimism. Purified by reconciliation, the fruit of divine love and of your sincere repentance, striving for justice and living in thanksgiving to God, you can be credible and effective prophets of joy in a world so frequently gloomy and sad, you will be the heralds of the fullness of time. The way Jesus shows you is not easy. Rather, it is the path winding up a mountain. Do not lose heart. The steeper the road, the faster it rises toward ever wider horizons. End of quote. May we begin each day renewing our petition to the Most Holy Trinity, that when we sit quietly in those moments of discernment in our lives, surrounded by the intimidating challenges of the world and blustering voices of the mighty, we'll have the quiet courage to take up our cross and follow Jesus on whatever adventure he has in mind for us. One step, one prayer, one joy-filled moment of witness at a time. Have a great day and may God bless you.